Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, here with Aaron Keller, and today we are joined by Russell Wollstenhume. He is our staff specialist for waterfowl, and we also have Chris Nikolai with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So welcome, both of you. Clearly, you could see we're going to be talking about waterfowl today. So Chris, I want to get into a little bit about what you do because you're with fish and wildlife service like i said and you're with the migratory bird service so you do a lot of work together the two of you yep yep so russell and i work together um banding mallards for goals that the pacific flyway has put together uh we work together counting ducks as well and we use that data to feed into the harvest models to predict how many ducks we can shoot every every year so russell and i work together a lot it's a good, it's a good day. Uh, um, sorry, I <laughs> 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 Men- mental freeze right there. <laughs> it's, it's a good partnership. We do a lot of good things together. So Chris has been involved in a lot of waterfowl projects across the state. Um, the department, when we can, we, we help support those projects because he, he does good work. Nice. Yeah, the one of the big projects that is on your jacket, the Wood Duck Project, that's how I got to know you. Way back when all that was going on. Yep. So. Yep. So that's a project. Um, yeah, I guess I can go into my history a little bit. Too, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. You know, I'm originally from Minnesota. Grew up there way back when. Finished an undergrad. Started getting technician jobs all over the country, working on waterfowl, wanting to go to graduate school, and yeah, found myself in Alaska working on uh, black brant. And started a master's project up at University of Alaska Fairbanks. Finished that up. And then my advisor took a job down here at UNR and drug me with him and wrapped up a PhD on Brant. And it was the year after I moved here, we started that wood duck project just because I got to keep busy. I'm the kind of guy that just can't do one thing at a time. And yeah, this last year, we just wrapped up the 16th year of that project and hoping to keep it going next year as well. Um, yeah, just another one of those unique aspects of Nevada that we'll probably talk about for that wood duck project. Yeah, for sure. And clearly you guys are both waterfowl guys, not just professionally, but outside of work you both hunt waterfowl. How did you first get into hunting waterfowl? Russell? Well, I um, I grew up in a hunting family. Um, hunted, a, I mean, pretty much everything you can think of. But not a lot of waterfowl hunting in my family. But I had a, a good friend of mine down the street, and his dad was into waterfowl hunting, and they used to drag me with them. And I was going to take any opportunity I had. So they said, you want to go? I'm like, yeah, I want to go. So I started going with the guys down the street, and just, you know, it's one of those things that there's, I don't know, there's just something something about it that just, if you get into it, it just really draws you in and holds you there. I was out um, hunting for swans on Tuesday. And didn't get a swan that day. That's what we were focused on. There was a lot of swans out there, just not a lot of flying. And, you know, but being out there, sitting in the marsh, watching that sunset, there's just something about it that just, it's magical. Yeah. 
in Nevada. What a great place to be able to waterfowl hunt in. Right, right. You know, a lot of people think the driest state in the nation, so they think what waterfowl opportunity is there. But you know, guys that hunt here, there's there's the the biggest uh, feedback I get from people who grew up in other states that came here. You know, they say, especially out over in California, there's, there's they say there's so many places to hunt. I never knew where to go, but in Nevada, you know where to go because there's we have a limited amount of water, so there's a limited spot to go waterfowl hunt, and so you know right where you're going to go. That's a good way to think of that. Mm-hmm. And Chris, how did you get into waterfowl hunting? Yeah, similar to Russell, um, yeah, I came from a hunting family, but the waterfowl days for my family stopped a couple years before I was born. Yeah, it was mostly deer and squirrels and doves and stuff like that but uh, i had a friend in elementary school that lived 12 houses down the street and started noticing in the fall this big huge trashy looking boat behind their (laughs) truck and (laughs) i'd run down there and i remember the first time there were birds i'd never even knew about you know you'd see a drake gadwall in the boat and drake wood duck and all of a sudden it was like holy moly i it opened up a whole new can of worms for me and um yeah an uncle that's 10 years older than me so we're more like brothers and yeah we just started hunting to see what these birds looked like it was kind of audubon style of uh i want to see one i want to look at its feet i want to look at its feathers and getting a license and getting a shotgun allowed me to do that and like I mentioned, I got to work all over the place. By the time I went to Alaska, I quickly completed seeing every North American species of waterfowl. This last summer, um, ended up finishing up my list for banding every North American species of waterfowl, which I don't know anybody that's done that. And then, um, yeah, working... Well, not working, but, you know, got a goal to shoot all of them as well. And as of last week, I've only got three more left. So wow. it's kind of fun for me. Yeah, you've seen all, a lot of North America then. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and I've, you know, and Russell knows, you know, I've gotten opportunities with other people. You know, I, I'm into decoys as well. So back in the day, I started carving because back in the early 80s, You'd go to the store to get decoys, and there was like six different carvings that were painted as 20 different species. And it was like, oh, my gosh, that one doesn't look anything like that. And right. so I started carving, and so I've gotten opportunities to bring my decoys to places like Iceland or send them over to Europe and stuff and go help guys catch their birds over there with my decoys. So right. it's pretty fun. For anybody, for anybody that hasn't seen Chris's decoys, he makes a, an amazing decoy and the really cool thing about chris and his decoys is is they're hunting decoys they're not they're not decoration they go out and they float in the water and they get bird shot over them do you sell these yep oh okay yep. i was gonna say if you're not selling them oh i could have sold <laughs> this trip we'll probably talk about later but last week my daughter and i traveled with let's see we had four flights each direction we had nine floating decoys and I think 54 silhouette decoys. So That you brought with you. That we brought with us. Yeah, I think we each had two pairs of underwear oh and two pairs of socks, but uh, we had a lot of decoys. <laughs> the necessities that's, then. Yeah, that's, a, that's what's important. That's actually a great example of uh, of waterfowling, right? It's oh like yeah. you don't need a whole lot of other stuff, but decoys is one of those yep. things that... Yeah, our carry-on lug- luggage. We each had a backpack and a duffel bag and. uh 
Yeah, we we carried nine floater decoys as carry-on, and with a little girl, no one's going to give you grief, so <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty nice way to travel. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that you said that I kind of want to double back. So one thing is banding, right? So can you tell us a little bit about, like, I don't want to skim over what banding is. If anybody's listening, they don't know what that is. Yeah, so there's, there's and Chris, chime in at any time here. So so there's there's um, a nationwide, in fact, multi-nation program to band waterfowl and the idea is is that we're out capturing birds we're putting a a federal leg band on them for the united states and they're all coming out of the united states nevada doesn't have their own leg bands it's all it's all federal bands we put them out there and they provide a lot of information um you know one of the primary things in the pacific flyway is we band a lot of mallards and the idea is is that the the return data when hunters return those bands, so it's really important hunters to to make sure you report those bands. Every band you get doesn't matter the species. Report those bands because that provides a lot of information to the to the biologist, but it, but it also um, drives the western mallard model, which helps establish what our seasons are going to be. And right. I'll I'll expand a little bit on Russell here since we're talking at the same topic, but I actually see banding as two components. One is exactly as Russell mentioned, where we put out Basically, let's say we put out 100 bands and 15 of them get shot and reported by hunters and we massage that number a little bit for crippling loss and the proportion that don't get reported. And that lets us estimate how many are getting shot every year. Where alternatively, we also ban birds for a lot of projects like the Wood Duck Project and my training with Black Brant where those bands... We can use them for those things, as Russell mentioned, but we also have tons of information on that bird. Those bands are more like a name tag or a license plate. And, for example, you know, like the Black Brant project I worked on, some birds live over 30 years. We encounter them on their nests. We, they got plastic bands. We can read on them as well with a spotting scope. And it's like, oh, that's AAA Yellow is her name. And, wow, we banded her in 1984 as a gosling. She started breeding in 1987 with this male, you know, AAE yellow. Right. And, we, you know, you get all this specific information. So banding's pretty neat because you got the operational banding that we do as part of the flyway for harvest reasons. But then you get the really neat basic ecology projects like right. we did with the wood ducks as well. Um you know, where we know how often you bred, we know who your kids are, we see you here, we see you there, we don't see you. You know, it's pretty neat. You get into the heavy statistics of this banding stuff, and it's the most robust, best set of data we have in the world. It, right. It's better than even survey data, aerial survey data. It's mind-boggling what you can do with bands. Amazing data that you can get back from that. Right. Banding could almost be its own podcast. It sounds like they're really good. Really good. <laughs> really yeah. And I think we'll put some we'll put some photos like on our social media and stuff as we go when we before this week, I guess, and uh some examples of bands and things that you guys use. No. Well, even just like the techniques. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were talking earlier um, you know, like in Iceland, those birds don't eat grain, so you can't bait them. So you have to use decoys to lure them in and e-collars, similar to like what we use for snow goose hunting. Right. You know, we just got to fool them because you can't bait them. You get mallards, you throw corn out in the marsh, 
and that's why baiting's illegal for hunting, but they're on it within a day. Right. And you can catch, it's basically how much corn do you have. Whereas, you know, shovelers and gadwalls, they don't eat grain either, so we have to catch them at night with airboats and, and bright, bright lights. So, right. Let alone the neat uses of banding data, but the, 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 method, the methodologies yeah, to, to get those birds differ for every species. Wow. Yeah, there's tons that we could talk, I, talk about. There's so much to talk about, I know. <laughs> right so, well, I did want to get back into, I know we talked a little bit about how Nevada is a great place um, for waterfowl hunting since there is so few bodies of water. You know exactly where to go, but it's there, it's also great for waterfowl hunting for a lot of other reasons, um, like the number of species we have here. Right, right. We've got a lot of different, a lot of variety of species here. Uh, Chris and I was talking about that a little earlier about you know the number of the number of species that that are in the state and that are huntable. Um, we have. Um, the way our regulations are designed, the Pacific Flyway gets the the longest season on a on a um, liberal hunt season, which is what we've had for quite some time now. We get a total of 107 days of, of duck hunting in the state, and so with our three zone system that we have, and those dates are staggered, the opening da- the season dates are staggered. It it gives us um, a lot longer opportunity if you're willing to travel around the state a little bit then then you get you can get in a lot of days and then with our our uh february late february and march snow goose hunt you can hunt for 135 total days in nevada for waterfowl wow well we're gonna get into this a little bit more right after this quick break you're listening to nevada wild If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. We're here talking about waterfowl hunting with Endow Waterfowl Staff Specialist Russell Wolstenhume. And we also have Chris Nikolai with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And we did just want to warn everyone, you might hear a lot of (laughs) scratching on the microphone. And that's because I'm surrounded by beards right now. Yeah, Everyone there's a lot, in of, this room a lot has of facial beard. hair in yeah. this room right now. Except for me. I'm the only, <laughs> I'm the only sure, exception. We'll go with that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you hear some scratching, that's why that is. Um, but right before the break, we were talking all about why Nevada is so awesome, basically. And we were getting into our s- talking about the season. And we do have a long waterfowl season. Right, you know, I mean, I talked a little bit about the staggering of the of the waterfowl zones, and the idea behind that is two things. One, I'm trying to I'm trying to beat weather. We've got the northeast zone, and it freezes up fast, so their season starts really early to give them more opportunity to hunt before they get froze out. You got the south zone, of course. You know, October rolls around; it's still in the 90s down there, so I I delay their hunt for as long as I possibly can, so that so that they're trying to beat the heat a little bit, so their hunt goes the longest into the into January of any of the zones, you know, but all three zones are staggered. So if a guy's willing to travel, you can get three openers in a year, which is pretty cool. But plus, like I said, it extends out the number of possible days if you want to travel that you can can get around and, and get some bird hunting in. 
Yeah. Aaron, you were saying great way to see the state. Yeah, if you want to get around, I mean, you like can start in the northeast and then kind of move your way around and down and kind of follow the migration as or as the freeze kind of comes down. Right. Um, right. Get a lot of waterfowl hunting in. Right. You know, even with the freeze, there's. When I lived over in Elko, worked over there for a few years, and when I was over there, there was a warm spring that came up, and it, it kept the creek open there, and there were some big beaver ponds, and they'd pull in birds, and that was one of my favorite goes. Everything else would be frozen down over in that cold Elko weather, you know, a sheet of ice, and that, that spot was always open, and I'd go up there and jump shoot ducks off of those ponds at any right. time of the year, any time of yeah. the, the season. Yep. So definitely scouting plays a big role in waterfowl hunting in Nevada. Watching birds, watching the water, figuring out where they're right. at, where they're right. going. You know, but every zone has some good waterfowl hunting opportunities. You know, there's Ruby Lake over in the northeast zone, Overton down in the south. I mean, lots of other places, too. These are just some of, some of the big places. So if you haven't been to some of these waters, you know, get out and check them out and, and, and see Nevada. See Nevada and send us your pictures because we love seeing all of those pictures and we could post them on our Instagram and Facebook. Right. And one, I mean, I think we kind of all grew up with hunting, which I think is a great example of how waterfowl hunting is great for getting kids or getting the youth involved in, in hunting. Waterfowl hunting is an awesome way to see cool places, to see a lot of wildlife, to have good times with your dad or your mom, right? Right. Um, Chris, I, I, I admire you. You do a great job with taking your daughters out with you and getting them muddy and taking them to work with you and the yep. whole deal. Your daughters are, uh, are well on the way to being. Yep. Well, they had no choice, you know, <laughs> basically, <laughs> you know, yeah, you want to <laughs> hang out with me or not. So yeah, both of them, uh, were banning ducks when they were six weeks old uh, I think both of them were out <laughs> on hunts at six months. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, same thing, you know, and traveling. Waterfowl is just a great way to see Nevada, the West, North America, the world, et cetera. I mean, there's people that hunt waterfowl at all those different levels. You know, there's the guy that likes his own blind at his private duck club, and he hunts it his whole lifetime. You right. know, where you got other people that just go all over the world trying to see as many different species as they can. So, yeah, I mean, my kids, both of them started going to Saskatchewan with me when they were three or four. And, you know, that's our big family trip of the year. So right. so you had you had your daughter, Grace, out with you a week ago hunting a, a pretty cool species. Why don't you tell us about that? Yep. So the uh, tundra swan, which... Uh, yeah, it's kind of a unique species to hunt, as you know, as Russell knows, because he helps set the seasons and all that. Um, that was probably what a dozen states total you can hunt them in. Out west, it's only us, Utah and Montana, and uh, you know they're a big bird. Those uh, the biggest tundras are probably 16 pounds, and everyone thinks they're flying slower than they look because <laughs> they're a big, huge bird and. They're challenging because no, they're they're flying 40, 50 miles an hour, and people just don't think about it. And, yeah, she's, uh, my daughter Grace is 11, and let's see, this was her third year trying. She's gotten like five shots each of the last two years, and yeah, finally, two weeks ago, she got one with her little 410 uh, with some really neat, you know, hand loads with non-toxic shot, and gives a little kid that can barely hold a gun up a, an actual chance, like the grown-ups, <laughs> right. just at a much smaller scale, and yeah, sure enough, she... 
she got it. That was pretty exciting for us. We saw the picture, too, and, and she, it's huge. She can barely hold sure. the bird yeah. up, let alone the gun. Yeah. That's so. exciting. So where was that, did you say? That was out at Stillwater. Okay. So this is this is a pretty neat year. Um, you know, we've come out of the drought. We dealt with the big spill last year and the first year of water on the habitat. So this is kind of the first year where we had carryover water, you know, where the habitat got to grow and is in really good shape. You know, like last year, you, you couldn't find cattails with heads. But this year, you do find cattails with heads because it takes them two years to develop that. Granted, we don't want too many cattails. But, you know, the wetlands were in great shape. And we've had, you know, some of the best swan hunting we've had in probably five years. You know, mm -hmm. reflected by the fact that, you know, swan tags got sold out this year already, which is only the fifth time. Th third time. Wow. Thir third time in recent years. In recent years, yeah, in the last in the <coughs> last uh, 20 me. years, but the fifth time ever in Nevada that we, we've sold all of our allotted swan tags. Yep, so a guy That's like exciting. me, yeah, who's involved with the biology and everything, it's so refreshing to come out of our drought cycle. I mean, right. Nevadans know we go through wet and dry cycles, and you know, when we had three years where Carson Lake was dry, Stillwater was dry, I mean, I couldn't find a duckling to band if I bought it. You know, where now you go out and there are birds everywhere and the habitat's great and it's awesome to be out and celebrate that the habitat's back to where it should be and we know it's not going to last forever. Too. Yeah, we know we're going to hit another drought sometime. How long can we ride this wet wave? We'll see. So get out there, get on EndowLicensing.com now, buy your hunting license, and get out there and Yeah, hunt. there's still plenty of time. Yeah. You've got all of December, all of January in Nevada to go hunt. and uh, yeah, A lot a of people wait out. until this time to hunt. Is that, would you say that's accurate for waterfowl hunting? Yeah, I mean, people hunt, like Russell said, they get out, you know, starting in the fall, and then they go, but there are guys that wait till after the big game seasons are kind of over and they'll get out after waterfowl or trucker and they'll wait until November or December when it starts to get a little bit chilly. And like for me, you know, I'm kind of the guy that likes the pretty birds, you know, right. growing up in northern latitudes, I shot brown ducks. <laughs> you know, if we saw <laughs> anything that looked good, it got stuffed, you know, full of pin feathers, whatever. And like, you know, when I first moved here, I'd never shot a cinnamon teal Never shot a pintail with long tails. Never shot a widgeon with long tails. You know, and that's one of those subtle little differences where you'll see those little, those middle tail feathers on a widgeon right. sticking out an inch. You know, it's like, whoa, that's a trophy <laughs> bird. You know, it's, it's those subtle little things. And, yeah, that's, for me, you know, I like going out and getting a few birds just because you got that itch at the beginning. But otherwise, I sit back and just wait till you get those pretty, pretty birds. And you have those days you know, the end of the day, you and your friends or your family are holding up these gorgeous birds. And to me, that's the fun part is just the, the beauty of the birds themselves. Yeah. Right. This is what I was telling you. I wanted to have Chris on it, on the podcast talk about he waterfowl. He knows his stuff. Well, and it, there's <laughs> and so many so different parts of waterfowl hunting. There's, you know, from the decoys to the the traveling to the kids to the wanting to see the cool birds. And to Chris, Chris does all of that well. Mm -hmm. Every yeah. aspect of it, he does it all well, and he, you know, um, really, really like kind of a, a pinnacle in the duck hunting world of of all that's all that's right and good. I mean, mm -hmm. getting the kids out, you know, making his own decoys, knowing what the birds are, you know, identifying with the birds, and then spending his whole life just you know researching them and thinking about them, and just 
I I harass Chris about <laughs> about his thought processes. Ducks, ducks, yeah. ducks, ducks, ducks. You know, right. and he he dreams about ducks at night. I know he does. Well, I mean, <laughs> it it relays to your kids too. Um, yeah, like my oldest daughter Grace, her first words weren't mom or dad. It was honestly duck, just like you were saying <laughs> duck, duck, duck. Yeah, I remember the first time. She did that. We were out banding it. We couldn't get her. We used these orange crates to shove ducks in. We couldn't get her out of the crate. Yeah, she, <laughs> she was so was small in back the crate. then. She was in the crate with the ducks. <laughs> so it's fun. You know, it's, yeah, for me, it's just one of those things, as Russell mentioned, it's almost fully life-encompassing. I like how much you appreciate the species, too. I didn't think about that for waterfowl hunting, that that's a part of it, getting these big, beautiful birds. Well, it's interesting, you know, I, and I've worked with birders a lot as well, and there's a saying I hear a lot that what hunters thrive on abundance and birders thrive on rarity, you know, because birders, they'll flock somewhere. Like Bill Henry, for example, what, six years ago, the old bio- retired biologist at Stillwater saw a jeer falcon at Stillwater. It's the first Nevada record ever. Two days later, there's probably 80 birders out there to see that jeer falcon. Because you know, right. there's one. Mm-hmm. Right. How many duck hunters are going to go out to the marsh because there's one mallard? Right. You know, so we're different. So, But I'm kind of somewhere in between that where, you know, like I said, I mean, we just flew out to the Aleutian Islands two weeks ago to uh, each shoot one bird. Right. You know, it's crazy. But it's a yeah. cool bird, <laughs> you know. Whereas, like I said, in the drive here this morning, and I saw 2,000 ducks because I swung by Virginia Lake, and there's probably eight species out there. Right. You know. So, no. There's a lot to see. Um, and it uh, that is one thing that, that as you move along in becoming a waterfowler is, while, is duck ID. I mean, you get – when I take new people with me, they're like, how do you know what that is? And you're like, I just know just seen it so many times oh and you've got to help us with surveys too i mean we're us biologists we're in airplanes at 100 feet flying 100 miles an hour right yeah a duck coming into your decoys is a pretty easy thing to identify (laughs) yeah right Right. and we just uh we just did a podcast on um a few different things but birding and rare bird sightings and that and and I got to relate through waterfowling because I, I've seen ducks fly by and you know what they are. No, like it's crazy. I and mean, you so listen to the birders now. I mean, there's for a month, there's been all three scoters and a long tailed duck on Pyramid Lake. Right. And you go up there right now and see beautiful black scoters and white wing scoters. A couple of years ago, we had a harlequin duck. Um, yeah, and that's one thing that I really like about living in Reno is you don't know what you're going to see. And I've, right. I think I've seen everything that you can see on Virginia Lake. And there's even a long-tailed duck 10 years ago that would stay on Virginia Lake and then he'd move to the river at, like, Idlewild Park. Uh. You know, you could go, like, right about now, the golden eyes are really showing up. And there's usually a dozen barrows, barrows golden eyes that'll sit either on the river behind the Grand Sierra or at Virginia Lake. Uh, they'll roost on Virginia Lake. You get there at the right time, you can feed barrows golden eyes grain or bread, you know, at the lake. You know, it's right. pretty yeah. neat. We yeah, saw them last right. year, I right? Yep. I actually got, <laughs> last year on the midwinter survey, I actually got some great video footage of those barrels on the on the river behind the GSR. Yeah, those were really cool to see. But unfortunately, we are running out of time for today. Thank you both for being here, and thank you, everyone, for listening.
Join us again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife.